Good morning, fellowship. Good to be with you this morning. Last week, if you were with us or if you've watched online and listened to the podcast, you may recognize this image. It's where we started this two-week series on Live Scent that's being broadcast by video on our campuses, North Knox and Pellissippi, as well as taught here. We talked about this image and just the power of thinking about these refugees, the desperateness, the hopelessness, the helplessness. And we talked about how God did not say to the world, which was spiritually orphaned, refugees, hopeless, abandoned, helpless, desperate. He didn't say, I'm over here, come on over to me, because it was impossible. But rather, through Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ coming into the world, God literally gets into the boat. And then we think of this, this, this saying that Jesus had, this command he gave the disciples, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Someone sent me an email this week, said just the thought, just rethinking my life, that I'm not just kind of going through life, but I'm actually, as Jesus was sent by the Father, in the boat with other people, and that's how I'm to live my life. Talked about how it changed his conversation with a client, with a coworker, and his own child. Just very simple shift away from, hey, I'm going through life, I'm doing all this to, I am live, I am sent, and I need to live sent in all my conversations and the impact of that. And so this morning, here's what I want to do with this, with this thought about us being in the boat, about us being called to be sent like Jesus. I want to go briefly deeper into the why, because it's always easy to forget the why. In everything we do, we just forget why, and it changes everything when we do Second of all, I want to see what does this look like in the first century. Let me just share a quick story from Acts on what this looks like. And then I want to spend the rest of the time talking about how we move forward as our fellowship of churches, our three campuses, and what God's doing. How is it that we move forward to live since? So if you have your Bibles, let's just look at the why. For some of you, this will be a reminder, but it never hurts to be reminded, right? John chapter 17, verse 22. Of why Jesus got in the boat spiritually with the world, with me and with you, which is our why as well. John 17, 22 to 24. And Jesus said, the glory, this is praying to the Father, the glory you have given me, I have given to them. He's speaking of the disciples and us as well. Because he said he's not just praying for the first century, he's praying for all disciples. The, the glory that you have given me, I've given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. The person, the fullness, the wholeness of who God the Father is. He says, I've given it to them so they can be one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus had a singular passion for the glory of God the Father and his heart for his children. It says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, the ones that you have brought to me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have, been given, have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. It is the Father's love that is the compelling vision and heart of Jesus. Does he care about the people in the boat? Yes, he does. Because he says to the disciples, you are to love one another and love the world as I have loved you. But his primary love is the Father's love. And it's before the foundation of the world as is his love for his children. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. One of the most glorious passages in scripture. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Ephesians 1 3.
why should we be thinking about being in the boat? Why should we be sent as Jesus was sent? Well, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That means he's brought the life of God the Father, the glory of God the Father into our world. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. When you recognize for the first time the person of Jesus Christ, you're arriving late to the party. This has been in progress, in process since before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption and as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I know some of you have theological backgrounds. Some of you, this is not going to mean anything, so I'll just go to list it. But those of you have the background of Reformed and Arminian and all those kinds of things, just, just relax. We just don't get all wrapped around the axle on this. You can see this and understand it in different kinds of ways. Let me just give you the two things you have to know about this whole idea of God before the foundation of the world had already adopted us. And this is a process that started now. He's just bringing it to completion in Christ. And that when we go into the world and we share Jesus, if someone comes to Christ, it's been in work since before the foundation of the world. It's not because you all of a sudden did something right. It's been in progress. You're just a part of a bigger story. Here are the two things you need to know. One, God is God and you are not. Everybody okay with that? Good? You're nice people. You look nice. You probably act nice. You're Southern. Of course you act nice, but you're not good gods. Okay? Two, the only thing you bring to salvation is your need for it. Your sin is your gift to the process. Everything else is God. And it's the heart of a father. Just a few months ago, Paul Fortenberry, Paul and Caroline have been uh, part of fellowship for years. They, Paul came to me and we went out to lunch. He said, Rick, we've got an opportunity to adopt a 12-year-old boy and a 9-year-old girl. And it means we've got to sell our house, we've got to move, we've got to do all this stuff. And we just talked and prayed. You could just see. I already knew what was about to happen because he had already adopted them in his heart. Uh, then Reed Carringer, who is at our uh, North Knox campus, he said, he, we went out to lunch and he shared, he said, here's the, these girls, they're 10 and 9 years old, and we met them through uh, the foster care system, and, and we want to adopt them. What, what do you, what do you, and so just, we just talked through this. He, had already, he and Rachel had already adopted them. And some of you have been following Bringing the Boys Home, which is Blair and Disa Benefield. Blair is our high school lead youth pastor, and um, they've been in China, and they're bringing their two boys home, they and Gibson. And they tell the story and you read the words. Blair, the moment he came and talked to me, they were already his boys. Do you grasp this? We're not doing this because it's a good idea, because good Christians do this, because Jesus said it and doggone it, you better do what Jesus said. This is about the Father's love and a story that's unfolding and his creating us to be a part of the process to carry Jesus into the world. Go back to John chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. Just listen at the language of this. See if this doesn't stir your soul for who you are because we're sent in the same way as Jesus. John 17, 6 through 8. I have manifested your name. In other words, I've made known who you are to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, 
and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given the words that you gave me and they received them. And I've come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. Is there a pattern here? It's a father centric way of looking at life. It is a being sent everything given from the father, everything said by the father, everything sent by the father, everything belonging to the father. So that even as Jesus encounters his disciples, seeing the father before the foundation of the world had already set the conversation up. And when he says that we are to go and be sent as him, it is to, we are to get into the lives of people some of whom will never come to know Jesus. That's not our deal. We're not responsible for outcomes. We're just responsible for faithful obedience because it honors his name and it's his heart. And some of whom will come to know Jesus Christ, some in our church, some in our community, some in our neighborhood, some in our campuses, some in our workplace. Some will come and, and you're just participating in a story that's being written since before the foundation of the world. But somewhere around the 19th or 20th century, the American church, as did Europe previously, lost sight of this on the whole. Not every, but on the whole. So I just want to, I want to show you how we forgot the why collectively. I'm not saying you individually. I'm not saying necessarily this church or that church. I'm just saying collectively, we kind of lost our why. The church was built in America in many ways to be a place, as it was in the European model, to bring people to the church. The focus was go to those unchurched people and bring them into the church. And then a problem set in. The culture changed and people got farther and farther away from the church. So in the late 20th century, we had this idea. What if we just made it more attractive to come? What if we just did things that just made people want more to come to our church? And, and the, the principles that were used in student ministries, youth ministries now are applied to the church. And then that started to slip a little bit. So here's the idea. Let's just make really big ones. Because really big ones can have better programs and, and better stuff and hire more expertise. And it'll be a bigger draw. And if we can just do these really big churches well, that's what's going to bring people to Jesus. Because that's how you do it. It's at the church. It's at the church. That's why you pay me to take care of this. That's the American mentality. The problem is all the time we were doing this in America, this was happening. Not only is the culture moving farther, farther away, but there were more social, moral, cultural, and intellectual barriers from the people who aren't in the church and the people who are in the church than ever before. And it's just escalated. It's just more rapid than it's ever been before. It's moving further, further away, getting bigger and bigger. And the idea that, well, if it gets bigger, we'll just make the church bigger. And all that happens is the barriers get bigger and bigger and bigger. So one of the things that happened in the 21st century is this idea, let's be an unchurch. Let's tell people, I know you don't like church, but we're cooler than that. Come to our unchurch. It's not like church, so you're really going to love it. I mean, you know, right? That's kind of how we thought about it. Or let's have many campuses because we have a bunch of campuses. That's what it is. We just got, if we had the campuses, more people would come. And you may think that's what we're doing. We're just using campuses to expand. That's why I'm trying to walk you through this. It's not what we're doing. It's not the point. Or we hear the term missional. Some of you've heard that we just get out into our community, which is a great thing. And, and multi-campuses are a great thing. And there's certainly nothing wrong with churches that are new and innovative. All those things are a great thing, but if that's your primary strategy. We've forgotten the why. And we become a church-centered gospel instead of a gospel-centered church. 
And then kind of the latest thing is, is, well, let's just try to be hipster, right? Are you a ministry hipster? Now here at, on the Middlebrook campus, the idea of a, a, a hipster lead pastor, we have embraced that completely. <laughs> like this is our primary strategy, right? Because there is nothing that's hipster. Nothing is more hipster than a 54-year-old pale suburbanite in a light blue sweater vest. <laughs> nothing says, come to our church like that. Look, there's nothing wrong with being If you're hipster, be hipster. If you're 54-year-old and look like this, just do it. It's not the point. There's nothing wrong with being 20. There's nothing wrong with being 2,000 or 20,000. It's not the point. There's nothing wrong with being more involved in the community or what the point is the father's heart of disciple making. It's not being unchurched, social justice, cool, hipster. It's the gospel. It's the father's heart. And the why is him. It's him. There's no other why. The why is the father's love. And what a gospel centered church looks more like, and I'm not smart. I look, I'm not smart enough to tell you what one looks like. I'm not like some guru, intellectual, innovative. I'm not the Steve Jobs of the church, all right? I'm just me. But I know it looks more like this. Where you don't look people as unchurched, but you know that people are out there, and the, some of them are the father's children who are not yet disciples of Christ, and you long to be a part of the story because that's what your father does. And you know, some of them will never, ever follow Jesus, but that's not your responsibility. That's not your call. That's not his ask from you. You are to go and be a part of him, bringing those who belong to him. As we shared last week, it's as simple as this, as being grounded in truth, the truth of who the father is, the son is the Holy spirit and who we are faithful in obedience by his grace, generous in love and fruitful in disciple making. And why we do this, why we live sent, is because it's our Father's heart. And anything less than that is an inadequate reason, whether it's building your church, being good to people, hear me, even relieving people's suffering. Should we be relieving people's suffering in the name of Jesus? Absolutely, with the Father's heart. Doesn't mean we have to always hand a track. Doesn't mean we always have to push them into something. It certainly doesn't mean we got to get them into church, but it does mean we're always carrying this reality that living sin is about the father's heart. Now that's why we do this. Let me show you through a story in the old, in the uh, book of Acts, what this looked like in the first century. This has become one of my favorite stories in scripture. Turn to Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11. Let me just set the, the, the tone here. Antioch is the capital of Syria in the first century. Uh, it's 15 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. It's the third uh, greatest and most vital and important city next to Rome and Alexandria in, in all of the Roman Empire. It's the center of traffic between the east and the west. And it's known for what one writer said, it's luxurious immorality. Um, a deliberate pursuit of pleasure night and day. Outside of the town was five miles outside of the town was a grove of laurel bushes in remembrance of the mythological story of Daphne, who was a moral maid that Apollo fell in the, the God, the mystical God, Apollo fell in love with Daphne, chased her around in order to 
protect her from his ways, she was turned into a laurel bush. And so they worshiped Daphne by planting this grove of laurel bushes. And then all the temple prostitutes at night would go into the laurel bushes where they'd be sought out by the men and through a sexual relationship would, quote, be worshiping. The term morals of Daphne was used throughout the first century world as a reference for loose living. One writer wrote this. Now, just listen to what he's saying. Rome was more than 1,300 miles away, but Antioch was so corrupt, it was corrupting Rome. When you start corrupting Rome in the first century, like, you way on. So that's Antioch. It's, it's, it's an incredibly vile place morally. But they also allowed religious liberty, and so there was a large uh, concentration of Jewish faithful people to Yahweh and their understanding of the scriptures who lived moral lives. And so you have these, these two groups in Antioch, very strong. Here's what we get. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, remember Stephen was stoned to death. Saul was a Roman government official who oversaw and stood by watching. And he's stoned to death. And so all of a sudden, people have to start moving around because of the persecution. They traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews, because up to this point, no one had conceived of this as anything more than a Messiah come to the Jews. It was a Jewish faith. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which that is a Greek cultural heritage, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, who are the Hellenists, the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. I have no idea who these men were. But if you're a Gentile and you're sitting here this morning and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that's, those are your spiritual fathers and mothers. Says the man there. So these were your spiritual fathers. That's them. That's why you're here. Because... Carrying the Father's heart for his children, carrying the gospel of grace and truth in Jesus Christ, they didn't know any better but to reach out to people who weren't Jewish and share Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas is kind of the, James, the brother of Jesus, is the head of the church in Jerusalem. Barnabas is like the, the great uh, spiritual father. He's the one that God sent uh, and the church sent uh, to take care of Saul when he was converted because they thought Barnabas could handle that. So they sent Barnabas to Antioch and when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and a great many people were added to the Lord. He had the sense of faithfulness to God and the presence and the conversation and the reality of the relationship with the Holy Spirit to be able to see this is good even though I've never seen anything like this before. This is the gospel. This is the Father's heart even though I'm not sure we were supposed to be doing this. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. It's been nine years since we've heard about Saul. For nine years, God's been growing him up, discipling and mentoring him, largely through Barnabas. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Do you see what happened? 
a group of unknown, anonymous, unspectacular men had the heart of the Father to share with the Greeks the gospel of Jesus and found out some of those Greeks were the Father's children he had loved and adopted before the foundation of the world. And Barnabas says, that's good. And he goes and gets Saul. Here's an interesting fact, by the way. Think about nine years. If Saul were converted on the road to Damascus now, within six months, he'd have a speaking tour, an agent, a website, a workshop, a seminar, and a conference. All those years of maturing, learning to walk with the Holy Spirit, walking through the guilt and the shame and all that he had been through and being a persecutor and a murderer of Christians. And God used all that time to prepare him. And when they got the the gospel moved into these Hellenists who would not have known all the things that the Jewish believers would know, Barnabas said, we got to go get Saul and we got to bring him here and we got to teach these Christians. And from that place... The gospel is launched into the world. Jerusalem to Antioch and into the world. And the church at Antioch is a picture of what happens when when a group of people who are just followers of Jesus, who have the heart of the Father, ground themselves in truth, learn to be faithful in obedience over time, learn to be generous in love. The next few verses, they give an offering back to Jerusalem because there's a famine. And they become not just disciples, but disciple makers, and the world has changed. Now, how do we do this? How would that look in the 21st century? I'll give you the best understanding we have as a leadership community of what, because so I, I want you to understand the church you're in. It, it may not even be what you thought it was. And it's likely becoming what you didn't expect. We'd use the term church not yet imagined. We didn't see years ago exactly where we would be here. But now we're starting to see it and understand it. And it's different than having a big church with lots of stuff and people trying to get people to come to it. Again, nothing wrong with being a big church. If you have the heart of the Father in disciple making, that's the point, not the strategy. But there are barriers to this. There are internal barriers and there are cultural barriers. So let me just give a little bit of time on telling you what those barriers are and address them. The first barrier, the thing that would cause us to say no, the thing that would cause us as a church, knowing these truths, to say, I know, I get it, but we pay Rick and Greg to do that. We pay the youth pastors to do that. We pay our people. That's why there is a church, so I can bring people there so they can be loved and hear the gospel. Do you see that limiting belief? Well, why wouldn't we get past that limiting belief? Well, first of all, change is hard. I mean, it's just hard. And, and I mean, if you're like me, you, there's almost a change fatigue. Like, everything's changing. Um, I no longer, I haven't read a, a book, a physical book, I can't remember, maybe a year, two years, because, first of all, my wife said, don't you dare bring another book in this house. <laughs> some of you hide your liquor, some hide your chocolate, I hide my books, all right? I'm not suggesting any of y'all would do that. I'm just saying theoretically. Um, I've lived in the South. I know preachers come and hide your liquor. So anyway, um, it's true. You know it is. <clears throat> so, oh God, that was funny. Anyway, so um, everything I do, like I, I, I can listen to a book three times faster than I can read it because I put it on two speed. And I, can, and I can do it while I'm going all over the place. 
and I love learning. So this is just working out really well. But now since 2007, I've changed the way I read, the way I pay bills, the way I get directions, the way I, I find schedules. Everything has changed. And at some point, there's a little bit of a change fatigue. And if you say, well, the church isn't a change, you know, oh, man, I'm so tired. I love this. It's kind of a facetious. I think this person's just got change fatigue. It's written about Facebook. I'm trying to make friends outside of Facebook while applying the same principles. Therefore, every day I walk down the street and I tell passersby what I've eaten, how I feel at the moment, what I've done the night before and what I will do later and with whom. I give them pictures of my family, my dog and of me gardening, taking things apart in the garage, watering the lawn, standing in front of landmarks, driving around town, having lunch and doing what anybody and everybody does every day. I also listen to their conversations. I give them a thumbs up and tell them I like them. It works just like Facebook. I already have four people following me. Two police officers, <laughs> private and guest investigator, and a psychiatrist. Like, I get it. I mean, you just get tired, right? I, I get it. I totally, totally get it. So if I say, hey, we need to go through changes, like, oh, my God. Hmm. But we don't go through changes to go through changes. We go through changes because the Father's heart in every generation has to be expressed and learned. And every generation forgets why. And we got to go back to why. We also struggle just with the challenges of when we've gotten comfortable somewhere. And, and, and when we get comfortable somewhere, we, we tend not to want to take that next step because change is hard. And, and like if you're in this church, there's a good chance you're pretty comfortable where we are. What you haven't seen is my job's been changing for the last 18 months dramatically in order to continue to move and grow in who God's called us to be. And what I'm saying to you is that's going to continue to take us into new places because of the Father's heart. So my wife and I, here's the challenge of being comfortable. My wife and I were uh, in Breckenridge a number of years ago, speaking at a conference, and before we went out, we played in the mountains a little while. So there's a place near Breckenridge, you go up in the mountains, it's called Upper Mohawk Lake. Saw the pictures on the internet. Loved it. We're good. We got to go there. Let's go. We had two days, so we decided to hike up there. So the first day, we get everything together. We get our protein bars, our apples, our cheese, our crackers, our water bottles, and all. And we start up, and man, it is a hard climb, a hard climb. It's like being a mountain goat in some places, like beautiful sites like this, but you're going back and forth, traversing up the rocks, altitude increasingly higher, and we go farther and farther. And then, like, we're, we're getting close, and everybody starts coming down the mountain. They said, hey, it's lightning up there. You got to go back down. Like, you've got to be kidding. We're like 80% there, but really good, not a good idea to go above the tree line in lightning, right? So we come back down and we talked about it and we all, and we discussed it and we said, you know, let's tomorrow, we're going to do it. We're going to do the whole thing. Evidently we didn't pray about it or we wouldn't have done it, but we decided we'd go and we'd walk up there, right? Cause we wisdom might've said, you guys are going to wear yourselves out, but so we decided to go back, and it was hard, and it was harder than we thought, and we're pushing the, but finally we get there, and that's what we saw. Now, at one point along the journey, I said to my wife, do you really want to keep going? And about that time, a little 20-something bebopper walked by six months pregnant. <laughs> and she said, we are going. So we get up there and we're enjoying the scenery. I mean, it couldn't have been better. We're having our snack. We're so proud of ourselves for what we've done, what we've accomplished, for getting it. And we're, we've arrived and everything's just so great. And then several people, including the little pregnant 20-something girl, start walking further up. So I said to somebody, I said, where are they going? They said, to Upper Mohawk Lake. <laughs> well, what's this? Lower Mohawk Lake. 
You gotta be kidding. So I look at my wife, I say, you don't really want to do this. We're going. She's going, I can do this. So we start up, my wife starts struggling with altitude sickness. It starts hailing. I mean, it's like, I'm just thinking, you know, we're going to be rescued by a helicopter. It's just, but we kept going and we kept going. And then we get up to this glacier water lake with these red trout, crystal clear, beautiful 12,000 foot lake. It was just unbelievable. I'm going to be honest with you. We've got to make a decision. Things are working pretty well. God's bearing fruit in our campuses, in our church, in our lives. We're seeing things happen and all. Do you really want to do that? Do you want to go to that next place? I understand if you don't, but I will tell you this. If you understand the love of the Father, you'll go. Come hail or altitude sickness, you'll go. We are called to press through our comfort, our change fatigue, and to keep asking the question, not as a burden, not as oppression, not as religion, but as a people of the gospel, how do we move forward? I want to take five minutes and and also just push a little farther because it's not just these things internally, it's our culture too. Our culture works against us. Our church, American church culture, I'm not saying any one place or anything, I'm saying our American church culture works against us. I'm going to give you five things. They're all the same thing. So don't worry about writing down. They're all the same thing if you think about it. I'm going to give you five things that press against being a disciple-making movement that carries the Father's heart into the world as its singular passion. Number one, in our culture, persona is so much more important than the gospel in our world. I was reading again, I was reading here, this do it yourself on how to build a mega church. And the guy said, one thing almost all these churches have in common is a guy with a great body and a great haircut. Of course, but... <laughs> Nothing wrong with having a great body, great haircut. I remember somewhat what that was like. Paul said, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the power of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. The gospel must become greater than persona. It also means we can all do this because, like me, most of you are just people. Not extraordinary in your persona, not some wow something, just children of God with the Father's heart and the life of Christ and the power of the Spirit. The second thing that we have, to, we have to overcome in our culture is personal experience trumps the gospel as well. So much of what happens in churches is about how we feel and what we experience more than truth. Look at these wonderful people. I mean, this multicultural, multiracial, multigenerational, and I will assure you that the people in this picture, if, if what they represent is accurate in their lives, they are sincere. They are faithful to their religion. They love their families. They are morally righteous in human terms in every way, and they are Mormons. And it's weird to think, wait, they're all those things, but they're not belong to
to the Father because it sure feels like it. Paul said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some to trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Even if an angel gave Joseph Smith that content, it's not the gospel. And we as a church have to put the gospel above our experience and our feelings and what we want things to be like. Personal sovereignty in our culture is greater than the gospel. I'll not spend much time on this. You can go to our August 16th teaching and you can, you can look there in more depth and hear our teaching pastor and myself, Greg Pinkner, talk about the culture of personal sovereignty and our rights. Listen to how how Paul addresses personal sovereignty in terms of sexuality in 1 Corinthians. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin is a, a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We have to press through the barrier of buying into the personal sovereignty of our culture and be concerned about things like sexual purity, financial responsibility and stewardship, respect for men and women, getting past a consumer culture because we are not our own. The fourth of the five things is religious humanitarianism has become more important than the gospel. Doing good things for people is like, it's just cool. It's just doing, spending money, time on people who are in need. It's just cool now. There's not, I mean, I'm glad it's cool. I mean, I'm glad people are being cared for. I'm for that. But I'm saying as a church, if we say, hey, I gave money to that organization. I went and worked with the poor. I got it. That's it. I've done it. And not understand that you're not carrying the Father's heart there. That's the Oprahization of the church. Oprah's got her Sunday soul thing that'll be on. I think it's this Sunday or next Sunday. You won't, there's nothing you'll watch that'll make you feel better than that. And as you watch it, you'll say, but that's not, it's missing the most important part. Jesus said, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I've come in my Father's name. You do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. Jesus said, I come in the Father's name, and I'm just going to have to deal with how you respond to me, but I am in the Father's name. That doesn't mean we cram tracks down people's throats. It doesn't mean we, we say, I'll give you a cup of soup if you'll recite a Bible verse. It doesn't mean I'll give money to the poor only if I can guarantee that they'll become Christians. None of those things. It's going and understanding that what we are doing is about a bigger story than ourselves and the gospel. And the last thing is church performance has often become more important than the gospel. I can't tell you how many things I get in the mail every week telling me how I can grow the church, make more, get more money, get more people in this, do this, spend tens and thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars to go get a headhunter to go find us a, a better pastor than me. I mean, there's just so many things you can do. And it leads to this. Here's what a pastor of a small local church said. The prevailing belief in this community is that a church will grow if programs are provided which people deem necessary. Because that is what seems to bring them in around here. Once they come in, we can show them love and then to begin to share the gospel with them. 
If that's not right, then what is the biblically correct way for a church to grow? Like, isn't that my job to make this thing so much more attractive that more people want to come to it? Isn't that how it works? Paul says, after all, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? We are only God's servants through whom you believe the good news. This was the father all along. This was planned before the foundation of the world. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts. Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What is important is that God makes the seed grow. It is his work. So the gospel has to be more important than persona, has to be more important than personal experience. The gospel has to be more important than um, than church performance and personal sovereignty. And the gospel has got to be more important than us. It's got to be about him. And I want to share with you a video that just shows how simple this can look. Let's watch this video together. Disciple making is something that's become very important to our family. Um, before we started attending Fellowship North Church a couple years ago, that's not even something that was on our radar. But through, through the things we were exposed to at Fellowship North, there's been a significant shift. Um, and discipleship and disciple making is, is very important to us. One of the places that we've experienced that shift most is in our neighborhood. We've lived on the same street for eight or nine years and saw our neighbors as our friends and people we knew and people that were in our everyday life, but that was where it ended. Um, now with the shift into um, disciple making and discipleship, we see our neighbors as people that God has intentionally put in our lives um, for a reason. And so we've begun to intentionally pursue um, our relationships with our neighbors and to, if they're outside, we go outside and hang out. If we invite them to the pool and, and have a good time with them and their, the moms and the kids with the hope um, that those conversations will lead to the things of God. And another example is with some guys that I work with. Um, I've got some guys that I've worked with for the last seven years. They are good friends of mine. But just recently, with this new perspective of the importance of disciple making, I've started meeting with these guys um, for the sole purpose of encouraging them spiritually. Um, and where I was never doing that before, that's something that even in the last couple of years, that shift that's happened, I could not see myself not doing. Um, nothing is more fulfilling than that for me personally, um, but it's also encouraging for them. It's, uh, it's just a new way for us to live. Um, it's exciting and, and it's, it's something that we're passionate about. So two years ago, I was sitting in a Sunday service and Rick put a message out that asked us, if, if you had a chance to serve in community or, or to attend Sunday worship, he told us to go serve in community. And I remember sitting thinking, what an absurd statement that was. But the more I thought about it, I was puzzled about it. So we joined in a prayer of God leading us just to give us opportunities to serve and the faith and courage to step forward. And I can tell you, it, it took a root. And our life has transitioned from, from one that we sifted through um, and how we presented ourselves to others to a genuine, authentic relationship with others who, just like Christ, who takes all of us and the good, the bad, the hardships and really has embraced it 
and being a part of our life and uh, allows us to serve others in that same manner as well. Yeah, for me, I think um, we were in a place in our life and our relationship where we were being challenged to pray for more authentic ways to serve and serve outside of our comfort zone. And we really wanted to go from just attending church and sitting in the pew to being the church and learning how to go and make disciples. And Fellowship Mississippi has given us a wonderful opportunity to serve um, in ways that we would have never otherwise been able to serve alone. And being a part of a body of believers has been so empowering and encouraging and exciting. Um, a fellow couple of ours encouraged us to just take that step of faith and go help start Mississippi. And we're not sure what that's going to look like, but we're going to go do it and it's going to be fun and we're going to make mistakes and that's going to be okay because God's going to be a part of it. It's been so fun uh, to see the way God is allowing us to serve and glorify Him. Um, it's been such an honor. Um, we've enjoyed uh, walking um, through life with the people at Mississippi, sharing the joys and the struggles um, and just the empowerment of, of serving Christ and bringing glory to Him. Kyle led a sermon and the message was that if you're hiking along the trail and whether you're two feet ahead or two miles ahead, you want to tell others that when you come across a loose rock in the trail, be careful, watch your step. And that ministry and disciple making of just sharing Christ and what's going on in our life with the good, the bad, and having prayer and support has totally changed our lives. Steve and Benny talk about their experience out of Fellowship in North Knox. And Matt and Jessica tell their experience out of Pellissippi Fellowship. And you are the reason those exist. Your prayers, your generosity, your commitment to disciple making. And whether you're on this campus or any campus or any of our fellowship of churches that come in the future, I pray that you get past your comfort zone. Not forsaking assembling together as a church, because scripture tells us that's not true. But understand the church is not the destination. It's not the place to get people to. It's the place where we grow. And as Jessica said, we're empowered and we're encouraged. And we learn how to pray. And we learn how to share who we are. And we just go into our neighborhoods. Steve and Penny were sharing. We just go into the coworkers. And we don't get onto some big, big pastoral ministry program. We just learn to live sent. And I want to show you what's happened. I'm going to just like take two minutes and show you what has happened and what is happening. Because this is the church that in 2008 we had not fully imagined. 2008, we were Middlebrook campus, that big uh, triangle, I mean, big diamond there around the inn in Knoxville. There was also a large campus in the North City, Farragut area, Two Rivers, which is a wonderful church that's thriving in that community. It was planted out of fellowship. And then River Oaks and Maryville, a smaller yet disciple-making church in Maryville. And those things were growing and thriving. And God had put on our hearts to multiply again, but to do this in a very different way. And so what we did is we started, you see a little purple dot. That represents a, a, a life group. What North Knox called a huddle group, where a group of people would come together partnering with the Holy Spirit with the passion and the presence and the prayer of relationship with God the Father to move into their community and start sharing Jesus and encouraging each other. And then we had a second one, and we had a third one. And when we had a critical mass, we put a campus out there. That's how North Knox was birthed. Not out of, hey, we need a place for people to go to. Not, hey, people in North Knox don't want to drive so far. Not, hey, let's expand and multi. It was, let's make disciples, and when we need to gather a campus, let's, and we have a leader, let's do it. 
And so then our college life and our young adult, which was at that time called the 3D uh, ministries, all those, those, they learned how to do this. And all of a sudden, fellowship started expanding and growing. And under the V there in Knoxville, you'll see a little triangle. And that is um, our international house church, which is international students who from around the world come to UT and now are learning how to prepare to go out to be disciple make, part of our disciple-making movement all over the world. And then we started seeing we had a lot of people in the Pellissippi area, so we started three life groups, and we started building life groups out there, and pretty soon we had a Pellissippi campus. And that's where we are today. What you heard is what we have become and what we're doing. Now I want to show you the future and why I preached this sermon this morning on understanding deeply the why and the how, and I've told you, you have to get out of your comfort zone. If what you want is a big church to go to, as your primary focus, you're going to be so disappointed in us. But if you'll struggle, work, grow with us into whatever God has for us, the next part of who we're going to become will look like that. From which will come campuses, which will become churches, which will multiply groups of people who are disciple-making. And this is the future we did not imagine in 2008. And the only thing is required is that we are sent as he was sent with the Father's heart. But I am telling you the truth. This is not easy or comfortable and cannot be done without the power of the Holy Spirit, the humility of prayer, the generosity of love, and a absolute laser-focused commitment on becoming disciple-makers. And that is what I want to learn with you for as long as I have breath. I want to learn how to do this and multiply this because it's the Father's heart. Not so we can be bigger or cool. It's the Father's heart. We might get smaller, but if we're being faithful, the outcome is in his hands. Would you stand with me and pray as the worship team comes out to lead us? We close out today with this song of commitment. And I'm just going to pray with you and then they're going to lead us. I encourage you to go to our devotional.fellowshipknox.org to walk deeper into this this week. Lord, as we sing this song, we recognize that we're being, we are saying words that are about getting out of our comfort zone and going to places that only you understand and know. And we must be taught by your spirit. Father, we this morning sing this because we believe you have called us to be a fellowship of churches, a disciple-making movement with the heart of the Father. You call me out upon the waters, the great unknown, the feet may fail. There I find you in the Oceans deep, my faith will stand, and I will call upon your name and keep my eyes above the waves when oceans rise. My soul rests in your embrace, and I am yours. 
Spirit, lead me when my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. And take me deeper than my feet could ever wander. And my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. The Spirit, time. The Spirit lead me when my trust is without borders. When you walk upon the waters, wherever you would call me. Seek me deeper than my feet could ever wander. My faith would be made stronger the presence of my Savior. The men who shared the gospel in Antioch didn't know this song, but that was their heart. We have to learn to follow the Spirit in prayer, to learn to offer our lives like Him. And we have to learn how to do that together as disciple makers in the 21st century. If you meant that when you sang it, would you pray it this week? And next week we'll close this series out by talking about how we go deeper into those places. This is a spirit, father, son work that we participate in. It's been going since the foundation of the world. And it will lead us. Our faith is made stronger. And our feet fail. But he is faithful. Lord, bless your people today with a vision for their lives and for their community, for their church, and more of all things, for your heart for the world that expands us into places we would not go, that leads us past the lower Mohawk we're comfortable in to the upper heights, to scale the heights of what it means to follow you. I'm inadequate. I don't know how to do that, but I want to learn. And I ask that we can learn together to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace and peace. There'll be folks.